Our text for this morning is uh, taken from the 10th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's the first 18 verses. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you, uh, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and, burnt and, and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies uh, could, uh, should, be for, should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us uh, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Such a powerful passage that as I um, spent time preparing it and um, caring for a number of people pastorally this week and phone calls and um, time together, um, it was rather overwhelming um, to read this passage and to read things like, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. We're going through our, ser uh, our sermon series on Hebrews, and we took a little uh, break last week as Joshua came and shared with us from the Psalms, um, at least a break from the service, not necessarily a break from this um, beautiful gospel that God gives us and how we can continue to enter in. And what I loved about what Joshua talked about was how we can be real 
how we can bring our problems, ourselves, the fullness of who we are to God, and in Jesus Christ, He forgives us. I think there, again, as we've said throughout, there's a lot of questions about how we are supposed to live and how we are supposed to act in today's society and culture as Christians and what the role of the church is in this uh, day and age as well. And what I like about Hebrews is how deeply it dives to answer these questions. It's not just a one-off kind of an answer. It's not just a bumper sticker or a tweet. It is the full glory of who God is and who He has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Metallica had a hit song, The Unforgiven. It's a hard transition, I know. It was the second single from their Black Album, extremely popular album, and it hit number 10 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Charts. James Hetfield said that he wrote this song in response to his parents' devout Christian beliefs, so much so that they would remove him from science classes, very fundamental of what they would expose him to. But ultimately, their lives didn't line up with their beliefs. His father left them uh, and their family when he was 13, and his mom could never quite care for him and his sister in the way that they needed. And you read the lyrics and what he did to take away, and what he did take away from his understanding of his parents' faith, and it's not positive, as shall we say. He said, New blood joins the earth and quickly he's subdued. Through constant pain, disgrace, the young boy learns their rules. What I've felt, what I've known, Never shine through in what I've shown. Never be, never see. Won't see what might have been, what I've felt and what I've known. Never shined in what I've shown. Never free, never free. Uh, so I dub thee unforgiven. It's a song about a boy and his life and how he grows up. But he's been given this name, Unforgiven, because he hasn't been able to conform to his parents' ideals and the expectations that people put on him throughout his life. And he's dubbed, he's named, he's labeled Unforgiven. Seems that this continued through Hetfield's life as well, this theme. He rewrote the song two other times for subsequent albums. And he said about this song, they're pretty basic and pretty elemental. To revisit them from a different, older perspective is very interesting. It's like a story that keeps going. It's been a staple of Metallica's live shows ever since, and I think it resonates with us for a lot of reasons, but one of them may be that you can go to Target and buy a Metallica, couple of different Metallica shirts. Still, like basic, elemental things that identify with us. Forgiveness is a basic elemental understanding of who we are and where we find our identity. You likely identify with Hetfield's lyrics in one way or another, either being given the identity of unforgiven or another identity or a label that you carry around with you. Unforgiveness carries two elements to it, guilt and shame. Guilt is the belief that you, what you have done is bad. You made a mistake. You wronged someone. You need to ask for forgiveness. But shame is deeper. It is the belief that you are bad in who you are, how you have been created. You committed such wrong acts because that's who you are. And you wear a scarlet you brazened across your chest. 
Many of us bear this burden on a regular basis. This is why we believe we find ourselves in the situations we are. This is why we blame ourselves for the life circumstances that we are in, the abuse that we face, the, the internal language that we have going on throughout our days over and over and over again because we bear this scarlet you. We have been told not just that you did something wrong, but that you are wrong in and of this, uh, in and of yourselves. I think this begs the question, how do we get forgiveness? How are we released from the branding of being dubbed unforgiven? How do we find forgiveness in this unforgiving world? How do we know that we are forgiven? Our author looks to answer this question in our passage today. We find forgiveness in Jesus' sacrifice. He's been arguing this for nine chapters so far, but he drives it home and he lays it out here in this passage. We find forgiveness in the sufficiency, the finality, and the testimony of Jesus' sacrifice. The sufficiency, the finality, and the testimony of his sacrifice to us. See, the problem with the sacrifices of the law was that what the priests were doing was insufficient. They had to come annually and regularly and continuously to offer these sacrifices. And more so, these sacrifices were only meant to foreshadow what was to come. Right? He says they are a shadow of what is to come. They weren't the fullness of what could be. They're not the reality, but they wanted us to be, they made us look for something more. What is going to happen? How can we ever be done with these sacrifices? They served as a reminder of the sin for the people, and they were impossible in themselves to take away the sin. The sacrifices themselves, it seemed, to load guilt and shame onto the ones making the sacrifice. The author quotes Psalm 40 to make his point. It was not sacrifices that were desired, but a life lived in wholehearted, obedient submission to God the Father. The psalmist uses four different terms for, the, for sacrifice that would have encompassed all the sacrifices that the ancient Israelites would have made, even into Jesus' day, the, the peace offering, the meal offering, the burnt offering, and the sin offering. And instead of these, the psalmist tells us that God desires a body, God desires a life that is lived in full submission to doing the will of God. And he says Jesus is the one who offered the fullness of himself to God. Not just his death, but his life also. He explains further when he says that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have been made holy once and for all. We have received the cleansing that we all desire so much. Jesus does what the law cannot do. It can sanctify us. It can set us apart for the holy purposes of God and the verb used in, throughout this passage means it means to make holy, to set aside for a purpose. Uh, this is the perfect passive tense. I don't get into the details and the grammar a whole lot, except when it means something. It is a completed action that happens upon us. It is not something that we have done, both to 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 um, earn our salvation or to to run away from God, but it is something that has been done for us something that has been done to us. And he says, once for all. 
It is perpetual. It is unrepeatable. It is non-replicable because it is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Yours and mine. Ours together. Often, too often in the church, we love to remind people of sin. And it's something we do talk about. We kind of have to talk about it. But sometimes we dwell too much on that. This week, I read a story of a woman who fought a lifetime battle with depression. And the message of the church that she grew up in didn't seem to help. She said this, In the badness of my childhood depression, I was teeth-rattlingly lonely. The Christianity of my childhood offered me no way out of my unhappiness. Rather, with its emphasis on sin and on the thorough badness of all people and Jesus' death for it, it gave me an explanation for why I ought to be depressed. Sin was what religion was about. If you had asked me in the fourth grade why was Jesus born, I would have been glad to answer. It was because of sin. If you had pushed me what it took to get our sins forgiven, I would have told you we have to repent of our sins. If you had pushed me a little further to ask what does it mean to repent, I would have said to feel really, really bad about what a sinful person you are. Feeling bad does not get rid of our sin. It furthers the guilt and the shame that we all too often remind each other of how we are not enough. It feels like we are never enough. Am I smart enough? Am I funny enough? Am I talented enough? Am I wanted enough? Am I loved enough? Am I forgiven enough? Am I enough? This is the voice of shame that constantly talks to us. You are not enough. And in this world, we are never enough. There's always someone we're comparing ourselves, someone uh, finding ourselves on the ladder, finding um, either not enough or too much sometimes. We have to tone it down. I've never been told that before. Whether it's in our parenting, our job, our school, our family, our marriages, we're either doing too much or we're not doing enough. We are perpetually out of reach of that carrot. But Jesus is enough. The reminder at church is not that we are not enough. That is true. Not of how we need to feel bad about our sins, which is true. But the reminder that we give at church is that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for us for all of us, both in his life and in his sacrifice, to do what the law could not do to set us aside for his holy good purposes. To tell us that in him we are most fully loved, most fully forgiven, that his life is ours, that his sacrifice gives us a standing with the one whose voice can dismantle all the sin and guilt and shame of our lives. But it's not only sufficient, it's final. The author of Hebrews reiterates that the priests always stand at their jobs. They're repeatedly offering the same sacrifices. They're on their feet. They never sat down when they were working in the temple, either offering sacrifices or waiting for people to come, kind of like a, a waiter or a waitress does. When you go through the day or the night, you'd finally sit down at the end and you're just like, but the priests never sat down. Jesus, however, 
offering himself, his life, as a single sacrifice for all time in the perpetuity, not just for those who were alive in his day, but for us as well, he sat down. His work was completed. Not that he's not still reigning and ruling. His job now is to wait expectantly for all his enemies to prop his feet up, for all things to be fully submitted to him. And verse 14 tells us what he is watching. He is watching his people be perfected through this process of sanctification. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Do you remember Seinfeld, anybody? I can reference Seinfeld like every week, basically, but just that I haven't is God's grace upon you all. Um, There's one episode in one of the storylines where George sees a security guard, and he questions his fiancée's, Susan's, "Why why do security guards have to stand all the time? What is it with his standing? Why do they have to stand? He's on his feet all day? That has to be brutal. Why can't a security guard sit So George goes through this long process, and he eventually gets the guy a rocking chair um, without his fiancée's approval, who owns the store. Well, the guy ends up falling asleep on the store, uh, on the job, excuse me, and the store gets robbed. And it's this hilarious thing, and George kind of denies all culpability in the end and all that. Jesus is not sitting down on the job. He sits down expectantly waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for all the sin and the effects of sin to prop his feet up. This is a relational category. We often think of these things in theological categories. Um, Justification, which is not a term necessarily used in this passage. Uh, However, it's referenced in the first part of us being made holy and then us um, uh, having been declared holy, excuse me, the declaration of forgiveness that we have in Jesus' life and death. But then the process of being made holy is the process of sanctification. So in one way, we are declared holy, and then we are made holy into that. It's a different way in which we, the world usually works. In relational terms, it's a declaration of forgiveness. I forgive you. Now we're going to close the gap, and we're going to be reconciled together so that we will be reconciled to God. And these are two very different categories that we experience in our own lives. The ask for us is to grant forgiveness, to give forgiveness to other people. We can't always offer them reconciliation. Forgiveness is something that we can do on our own. I have to have this conversation with a guy later on uh, this week. I need to reach out to him. Uh, We hosted the party last Saturday here, and um, my bourbon cabinet was pilfered, we'll say. Um, I was not asked permission. I love to be able to share um, things, drink and food and all that with people. Um, But they just kind of went into it and ultimately drank, I think, my nicest bourbon that I have. And they were like, oh, well, whatever. And I'm like, for us to be able to continue this conversation, this relationship, we need to have a conversation to go in deep uh, and to, to, to find that forgiveness my prayer is that reconciliation would come out of that. But that doesn't always happen. It takes both parties to find reconciliation. There are other relationships that I am um, still working on, both the forgiveness part and the reconciliation. As a family, we try to practice forgiveness. 
we make our kids apologize to one another. They hate it um, because it re- it kind of lets them know that they have to recognize that they did something wrong, and they the other person has to forgive them for it. But what this does is it grants freedom both for yourself and for the other person from the guilt and the shame that we experience in this life. I want the relationships. I want us to have forgiveness, to apologize, and ultimately reconciliation as well. Let us be a people who grant the forgiveness that we have been given. But not only is it sufficient, not only is it final, but we have the testimony of the Spirit working this sanctification out in our lives. This is how sanctification takes place. The Spirit applies the fulfilled law, the sacrifice, the life and death of Jesus into our hearts and minds. The sacrifice that Jesus has offered once for all, fulfilling what the law could not, making a new covenant through His blood, The Spirit then applies that to our hearts and minds to perfect us, to give us a clear conscience, to release us from the guilt and shame that we we carry around with us, not to remind us of our sin, but to remind us of the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness that is offered to us in Jesus, freeing us in Him. This is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, the author of Hebrews has quoted this earlier in chapter 8, and so he kind of re-paraphrases it again. No longer are we motivated to obedience by guilt and shame, by offering of sacrifices, but our motivation is to live in relationship with God who, that comes from within, from our own hearts, from the transformation of who we are and this new relationship that we have with Him. This gives us heart obedience, not just individually, but together as his people, as we are formed together as his church. This is like a gift being held out to be received. We have to accept it. It has to be offered to us over and over and over again. We have to come back to it because we are forgetful people. The thing that we need most is forgiveness, and we forget that all the time. When the feelings of guilt and shame come upon us, when we speak to our own selves, calling us unforgiven, when we hear the voice of those around us telling us how unforgiven we are, we have to come back to the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us to receive his gift to us. In Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus, you are forgiven over and over and over again, and we speak these words to one another. This is why we practice confession and absolution every week. We want to be known as a people, as the table, where, they, where people can come and receive the forgiveness that we have received in Christ and the reconciliation that is taking place in our lives as opposed to the church that the woman grew, woman grew up in, believing she was never enough, or James Hetfield's upbringing of being dubbed unforgiven at the table, we want to invite people to taste and see that the Lord is good, that His grace and mercy changes lives. But we have to receive the gift ourselves. 
We can't deny ourselves. We can't let other people's voices speak into our own lives. We have to believe, and it's a return over and over and over again to be reminded of his gift of forgiveness. In Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus, you are forgiven. This forgiveness that God offers us in Christ and applies through the Holy Spirit, redefines who we are, relabels us, and gives us a new song to sing. There are about 40 minutes left in their recording session. The bassist had already gone home, but the band didn't feel like they had a completed album yet. So the lead singer opened his worn Bible and drew inspiration from the Psalms. In about 10-minute increments, they wrote the song, the melody, they recorded it, and they packed their stuff up and left right before the next band was coming in. The psalm was Psalm 40. The album was War. The band was U2. The song is entitled 40. Bono sings, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lifts me up out of the pit out of the miry clay, and I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? This song, too, has become a mainstay of their concerts, and they usually close with this song, each member of the band slowly making their stage exit while the audience continues to sing the refrain, How long, how long? How long? It's a song that testifies to the freedom of forgiveness that God grants to us sufficiently and finally in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful um, that we can come to you not to be reminded of our sin and how much guilt and shame we carry and that we don't feel bad enough about our sins, but that we can be reminded of the forgiveness that you give to us. Lord, we thank you for sending Christ to live the life uh, that is a body for you, that takes care of the sin offerings, the peace offerings, the guilt offerings, the meal offerings, all of those things that separate us from you. We thank you that not only are we in you, that you came to us, but that you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to give us new motivation for how we live our lives, lives lived in obedience, grateful out of our own hearts to be conformed into the likeness of you, into the likeness of your Son, who sings a new song over us as he waits patiently for all his enemies to be made a footstool and for us to be conformed to him. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.